In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear saints, today's gospel lesson takes place in the Jordan River where John the, baptize, John the baptizer baptizes people unto repentance and forgiveness. And here people stream to him with sins haunting them, guilt weighing them down, and John would welcome them. It didn't matter, it mattered not who they were, with a long list of sins attached to their name. He baptized them for the forgiveness of sins. Whoever confessed, John absolved and baptized. John baptizes the multitudes, but he doesn't baptize everyone. So in chapter 3, you look at the earlier verses in verse 7, it says, But when he, when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, which we take to mean he didn't baptize them. John is saying no to them. It's like John practicing closed baptism. Uh, He's baptizing, but he's not baptizing everyone or anyone who just shows up. He actually uh, forbid the Pharisees and the Sadducees from being baptized until they would come in a more honest way. And that honest way is in repentance. Now, why did they go out there in the first place? Why did the Pharisees and Sadducees go there to be baptized? Well, we know that it wasn't for the forgiveness of sins. They went for another reason. And the question is, why? What reason? We don't know for sure, but we can suspect what's going on here. Uh, ritualistic washings were somewhat common in, in, in the Old Testament and even carried into the New. Some of these washings were biblical from the Scriptures and some of them were unbiblical, not from the Scriptures. And this is what the Pharisees and Sadducees were engaging in. Uh, but all of these washings, all of these were self-washings. These washings were something that they did and accomplished for God. Right? It, was, it was something coming from them as self-washing, and I'm doing this for God. They were, it, it was a public statement saying, look, I'm ready. I'm ready to turn over a new leaf. I'm ready to start a new life. I'm ready to live life differently uh, for God this time around. And so I would make that statement through a ritualistic self-washing. With this in mind, I suspect that this is why they wanted to be baptized. That they thought John's baptism was simply just another ritualistic self-washing. And so they intended to publicly display their commitment to the Lord. They planned to put their obedience to God on display, on a pedestal. Uh, They show their good works before others and they demonstrate their purity and their virtue. So people went to John confessing their sins and John baptized them. But here the Pharisees and Sadducees went out to him. And John didn't baptize them. And that's because they didn't go to confess their sins. Rather, they went to express their self-righteousness. And John denied them for that kind of attitude. In fact, he urged them to real contrition. 
real repentance, real sorrow over their actual sins, the sins and the sins they were born with. He exhorted them not to make a show of their obedience, but to actually confess their disobedience to God. He admonished them to truly repent and truly receive forgiveness. Uh, So this is why he calls them the brood of vipers. Because their teachings injected people with the venom of self-righteousness. The idea that sinners can make themselves pleasing and acceptable to God. Now this idea is one which is very common in our day. Especially among Christians. This Pharisaic idea is that baptism is simply a self-washing, an act of obedience on my part for God or a decision for me to turn my life over to God. Many believe that when they're baptized, they're, uh, that, that they're forgiven of their sins, but not through the water or the baptism itself. Rather, they think they're forgiven because baptism is simply a mark of their commitment to God. Or that God is forgiving them because of their baptism or in response to their baptism. So they do an act of obedience first, and then God looks at that and says, that's pretty good, I'm going to forgive you, right? You must be genuine, you must really love me, so I'm going to love you back, right? For many, baptism doesn't actually do anything. It's simply a demonstration, an outward sign of an inward reality, they say. It's a public act showing what is already inwardly or privately true. Baptism doesn't actually do anything for them. It's, it's a tool or a platform uh, to really show people who you are, to let others see what kind of person you are. For them, for many, baptism isn't a gift from God to you. It is actually a gift from you to God. It is a work, your work. It is your doing, your act, your washing, your decision, your demonstration, your action, your obedience, your commitment, your devotion to God. It's this idea of baptism as a self-washing that is the driving force behind so many church practices of baptism. And there's so much I could say on this, on baptism alone. We could be here for years learning this. Uh, but I'm just going to highlight two of these practices. The first is the refusal to baptize infants. And this comes from the idea that baptism is a sort of self-washing or self-dedication to God. Well, if that's the case, can a baby do this? Can a baby decide? Uh, Can a baby act or do anything? Can a baby be obedient to God? Can a baby commit and devote his life? No, he's not old enough, so he can't do these things. So baptism is not for you, at least not yet. Another very common practice, and it's one that churches persuade people to do, they encourage people to be baptized a second time, or a third time, or multiple times, or many times after that. And this makes sense to them. If baptism is a self-washing, a work you do, then you are never going to do it quite right. You're never going to quite get it Perfectly. I mean, you can't do anything perfectly. So you're going to have to try more than once. Give it a few tries and see if it finally sticks until your devotion to God is real 
and genuine and long-lasting. You may have to do that multiple times, especially if you've drifted off and lived a shameful life for a time. You'll have to get up, you dust yourself off, you rededicate your life to God and show everyone that you really, really mean it this time as opposed to uh, the other six times. (laughs) But John's baptism was not a self-washing. It was not a self-cleansing. The Pharisees didn't understand this, but this was a cleansing from the outside, from another, from above. Namely, a washing from God. (coughs) It was namely a washing from God for sinners who could not cleanse themselves, who could not clean themselves off from sin, who couldn't scrub away the guilt that they carried in their conscience or the shame that they had in their hearts. The ones who couldn't get this out, God was doing the washing. John's baptism was God acting for a sinner. Not a sinner acting for God. And this makes all the difference. It makes all the difference whether you should baptize a baby or not. Or whether you should be baptized multiple times or something like that. If baptism is your work, then a baby can't do it and you probably have to do it multiple times. But... If baptism is God's work, which it is, then it is perfect and complete the first time, no matter what age or how many times you have failed. Can an infant do anything? No. But can God do something for an infant? Of course he can. He made that infant without him asking. God knits them together in the womb. Do we need to be baptized multiple times? No. Because if it's God's promise and his work, then it is done. It is perfect. It's complete. There's a period at the end of that. How many times does God have to do something for it to work? (laughs) How many times did he have to say, let there be light before there was light? How many times does he have to say, your sins are forgiven before they're actually forgiven? He speaks and it is. It's done. Listen to what God himself says about baptism. Acts chapter 2 says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this promise is for you and for your children. 1 Peter 3 says, Baptism now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, Titus chapter 3 verse 5 says, God saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing, the water, the bath. Of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. This is the Spirit He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Romans chapter 6 says this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with Him by baptism into death in order that 
Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Here you see nothing uh, about baptism being your obedience, your dedication, your commitment or work for God. Rather, all you hear the Bible say, all you hear God say is that God saves, he washes, he renews, he gives the Spirit, he removes sin, he raises us with Christ, he forgives us, and so on and so forth. It is God, it is his word and his work. Okay, now we get to the next part of the text. John baptizes sinners and turns away those who don't repent. So, there you can imagine, there's this great big line of people waiting to repent and confess their sins and be baptized. And in this line, you find perhaps a liar. And then next to him, after him, is a prostitute. And next in line is a man who has abused his wife. And one after him, a woman who gossips and slanders. Next is a man who has cheated people out of their money, stolen from them and been dishonest. Next is a child who is disobedient to his parents and doesn't listen. Here comes one who is covered in self-pity, who's complaining all of the time, who's moping around and utterly discontent with the life God gave him. Here's another who's uh, chased away people through his awful words and behavior and caused them to stumble. And after him, there's one who's lived a life of drunkenness, a life of inebriation. And then after that, there's one who's plagued constantly with dirty thoughts, whose heart is filled with lust and adultery, whose eyes have seen more than they should. And here they come, line in a line, a person after person, sinner after sinner, to admit their sin, to admit their guilt, to flee the wrath to come, to take refuge in the water, to come clean and have it all washed away. And then one day, after baptizing countless of these people, John lifts his eyes to the next person in line. And it's Jesus, the Christ. And John says, you are not supposed to be here. This is not the place for you. In fact, I need to be baptized by you. I need to be in the line and you need to be standing here. Why is John saying this? It's because John knows that baptism is not for the righteous, but for the unrighteous, for sinners. If baptism were simply a display of our obedience and our righteousness, John wouldn't have tried to prevent Jesus from doing this. He would have said, look, Jesus, come, show us, be baptized, show us how this is supposed to be done. You are perfect. You are holy. Wash yourself and show us how you dedicate your whole life in perfection to God. You, are the, the, you know how to do this, right? Teach us. But John tried to prevent him because he knows that baptism is for sinners. He knows it's for the disobedient And he knows that Jesus is none of those things, neither sinner nor disobedient. And there he stands in the line mixed with every sinner. And when John tries to prevent it, Jesus says, permit it. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. (coughs) So the question is, what in the world is going on here? Why is Jesus being baptized? 
It's not because he has sin of his own or because he needs to be forgiven. In fact, quite the opposite. Jesus is being baptized. When he goes into the water, he goes to absorb all the sins that were washed off of us and left in that dirty water. Like a sponge or a mop or a rag of cleaning up filth. He's taking into himself, absorbing, soaking into himself all of the filth, all of the wicked thoughts, all of the, 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 the lies, all of the addiction. He brings into himself all of that disobedience. When we go into the water, our sins are taken off of us. But when Jesus goes in, the reverse is happening. It's being uh, 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 soaked into him. And the question is, how do we know this? How do we know that's, that's, that's happening? What indicates to us that this is actually, this exchange is going on? Well, the very next day, John preaches the greatest sermon in the world. When he sees Jesus the very next day, he points to Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, the, the original Greek says it better. And here, uh, understand this more clearly. He doesn't say who takes away, as if he's going to sometime. He says, behold the Lamb of God who bears, who is bearing, who now bears the sins of the world. He points to Jesus as if something has changed now. Look, turn your eyes here. Behold Jesus, who you saw yesterday, now go into the waters. Now he is bearing the sins of the world on him. He's carrying them around him, with him, in him. He's born to be our substitute in Bethlehem, but he begins to carry those sins around in his baptism. And with those sins on him, he decides not to get vengeance or strike us down, but to go to the cross and do the most beautiful and wonderful thing. He has no sin of his own. He's innocent. And yet he suffers for all of them. I can't say it better than this. So I'm just going to read the scriptures to you. This is 1 Peter chapter 2. He... Jesus committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like straying sheep, but now you have been returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So today we see Jesus where sinners should be. In fact, his whole life we see this. We see him in the uncomfortable manger where animals slobber and feed, and there's Christ. We look in the Jordan that is filthy with our sins, and there's Christ. And we look on the cross where we deserve to be, and there is Christ. And we look in the tomb where our bodies lifelessly should be laying down, and there we see 
Christ all the places we should be. And yet, this is precisely what he came to do. He came to number himself with sinners. He came to take our spot, our place, to be our substitute. He came to count himself among sinners so that you would be counted as sons of God and inherit the kingdom forever. He came to be where you are so that you might be where he is. So in your baptism, before closing, in your baptism, there was a decision, a work, and a commitment made. But it wasn't yours. It was God's. It was his decision to forgive you. It was his decision, his work to save you, his commitment and devotion to clothe you in the perfect obedience and righteousness every single day of your life, that that righteousness of Christ before you lived any one of your days. He saw all of the sins you would commit and said, I want to forgive those. I will forgive those. They're gone. I cover it with the righteousness of my son. And there in baptism, in your own baptism, you saw his heart open up to you before the world as he dedicates himself to you to redeem you, to forgive you, to make you his forever, that his word stands forever. There he gave you what he won on the cross and you receive what he won, what he achieved. He took all of your sin and gave you his righteousness. When you were an infant and could do nothing for yourself, God's forgiveness was true. And when you fell away into sin a thousand times since then, his forgiveness for you remained true. And when the day comes that your lips can no longer confess or articulate the faith God has given you and your lips can no longer move, the power of baptism will remain. That his word hasn't changed, it won't change, and it will remain true forever. That you are his son, that he forgives you all your sins. So cling to that promise in faith, and on the final day, when the living and the dead are judged, you don't have to worry what God will say to you, because what God says to Jesus he will say to you, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Amen. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.